Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Everybody, happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots of interesting stuff breaking this morning, including we had to add a block into the show last night. Apparently, some classified documents were found <laughs> at a former office space of uh, President Biden. Uh, these were documents, apparently, uh, from when he was vice president. Break all of that down for you. A little bit awkward, I would say. <laughs> I would a little say bit awkward. That. Yeah. Um, at the same time, the uh, rules package passed the House last night. This was sort of the first big test of Kevin McCarthy's new speakership um, that went through. I think you know, I think he won by like two votes or something mm-hmm. like that. So he only lost a few votes in the Republican caucus. And there is a surprising advocate for some of the changes that are included in this Kevin McCarthy speaker deal. So we'll tell you about that. We also have some pretty stunning new polling revealing Americans' priorities, how they are feeling about the state of the country. We've got some new Twitter files exposing Big Pharma and some major conflicts of interest with regard to media. Not that you will be shocked there. Uh, Prince Harry is making a shocking admission that somehow the media mostly ignored. Yes, is being completely ignored. Yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this is an interesting one. And yeah. also, you gotta love this. How many years are we post 2015, 2016, Russiagate? The media is finally admitting that at least one aspect of it was completely fake news. Shocker. Amazing. Yeah. Um, excited to have Yon Grillo on the show. He's going to be giving us a report on what exactly is going on in Mexico. Um, I am looking at the tech session, and Sagar is looking at Jordan Peterson. But before mm. we get to any of that, Live show. Live show. Put it up there on the screen. Last couple of chances here, folks. February 3rd. Uh, Tickets are being booked. Travel, accommodations, all of that. Send your food recommendations in. We are coming. We'll have a great show for all of you. We're going to do some fun (laughs) stuff while we are down there in Austin, Texas. Yes. Okay. 
Uh, let's start with Biden. So late news breaking last night. Well, let's put it up there on the screen. It turns out that 10 classified documents were actually removed from Joe Biden's presidential, a vice presidential office found at the Penn Biden Center uh, for Diplomacy and Global Engagement while he was moving out of that office in 2017. The uh, classified documents were actually found by Biden's own team in an internal review, presumably, Crystal, after the Mar-a-Lago raid in November and the general, you know, uh, public consternation about it. The Biden lawyers themselves were like, hey, maybe we should check our own archives. They did so. They found actually 10 documents with classified markings on them that were inside of their archives removed from the White House while Joe Biden was the vice president. Now, according to Biden and his team, they have immediately returned those documents upon discovery to the Department of Justice. However, the Department of Justice itself has actually opened a review of the case. Uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland actually appointing a Trump appointee uh, to a special prosecutor to actually review the entire case. So all of this a bit awkward and frankly embarrassing for the Biden administration just because they made such a big deal of the Trump case. I mean, I would have to say, of course, what separates the two is not the possession of the classified documents itself, but with Trump, there appears to be, you know, a concerted effort by Trump, his lawyers, and others to simply just not return the documents, not necessarily out of malice, but increasingly out of arrogance and incompetence by basically saying these are my documents, which not really how presidential records work. <laughs> but um, I will say, I think it does validate one of the points that a lot of people who were, had defended him said, putting the obstruction aside, they're like, hey, I think a lot of these uh, presidential libraries do have uh, at least some sensitive documents. It also does raise a question broadly to me. Why do these people get to hang on to literally anything if they are matters right. of state? Why are they allowed to be at these libraries at all? Should they not just be purely in the possession of the National Archives? Maybe that's just a crazy thought. Well, I, just because you're president, I don't think that entitles you for all time to possession of your own files. I think that's a good yeah. point. I think another point is that, like, obviously overclassification mm-hmm. is a massive issue. So a lot of these, I mean, I don't know what these particular documents from Biden were. I don't know how secret they were what the highest classification marking, et cetera, was on them. But a lot of stuff that is technically classified is totally available yes. in the public sphere and really shouldn't be classified. So that's an important thing to keep in mind here as well. Um, I think your point about the difference between him and Trump's case is also, you know, a valid one. Probably the if Trump ends up being indicted on the document issue, it is more likely to be because of the obstruction yes. than because he, you know, accidentally or intentionally or whatever held onto these documents. At this point, there's all kinds of reporting about how they were going back and forth with the National Archives for a while. It was productive. And then basically he decided, like, no, these are my documents. I'm going to stonewall. They apparently have some camera footage of him, like, moving boxes around and trying to conceal them. So that is probably going to be the bigger issue for Trump. But putting all of that aside, obviously, this is a very bad look for the president. It's very awkward, given the concern and consternation about the documents that uh, former President Trump was ultimately holding on to. There's another thing that, you know, it's, it's, I guess, a little bit of a side story here, but something that Ken Vogel was pointing out, which I think is worth worth noting. So these documents were located, were found by Biden's own attorneys at the Penn Biden Center. Uh, 
And this is where he had this cushy gig during the off season when he was not vice president and he was not yet running for president, where he made $900,000 over the course of just two years Mm -hmm. for a vaguely defined role that involved no regular classes and about 12 public appearances on campus. Hmm. So this was a very cushy gig for him where he apparently did basically nothing and earned almost a million dollars and hung out with some classified documents in an office is apparently what was ultimately going on here. So (laughs) there's a lot of layers of uh, exposing the political system and the way all of this ultimately works um, at at work in the story. Oh, absolutely. It's just, again, I don't know how we created this weird system where presidents and former officials feel entitled to their matters of state while they leave office, even though they're allegedly, at least, important to the American public, and then are then just allowed to create these insane centers where they get paid a ton of money and also, by the way, get to solicit private donations. This, you know, like the Jeff Bezos giving $100 million to the Obama Library in Chicago. The fact that Obama, I believe, is like in consternation with some community activists in order to get some of the land for his own. But again, I don't even want to make it about them. You know, my hometown, College Station, the George H.W. Bush Presidential Library is there. And again, like you'll go there and you'll see like treasures, you know, pieces of the Berlin Wall and you know jewels and other things that were given to uh, President Bush while he was in office. And I was like, I don't really understand like why this stuff is all here. Like who actually owns it? There just seems to be this quasi, almost like a royal treatment that we give people and that really just needs to go away completely. There's one last piece that yeah. I want to add on to this, which is the timing of the disclosure mm-hmm. that these documents were located because apparently... The documents were actually found like a week before the midterms. Wow. <laughs> and then they waited a couple months oh, till they, you know, secured their election situation um, for this revelation to ultimately be made. I'm reading from a New York Times story here. They say the White House statement said that it is cooperating with the Department of Justice, but did not explain why Mr. Biden's team waited more than two months to announce the discovery of the documents, which came a week before the midterm congressional elections, when the news would have been an explosive last minute development. So. Also, another little that interesting is, note that there. Is so, it, just the level of corruption here. Listen, y'all, unbelievable. Lock them all up. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, <laughs> look, takeaway is yes, it is substantially different, at least legally, you know, in terms of the way that it's being treated. But you know, on the substance, clearly, uh, he did the exact same thing. I guess just didn't have the <clears throat> idiocy to try and cover it up. And it's going to be embarrassing for him, regardless. Especially if Trump does get indicted, expect to hear all about it on the Fox News Channel yes. and elsewhere. Yes. So get acquainted here, with the details, here folks. Here as well, guys. And the timeline. we're equal yeah, opportunity in terms of our coverage. We've got to cover it. It's going to be an important story. Okay, so moving on to the very latest in the new Republican House majority drama. So there were some questions yesterday over whether the uh, quote-unquote moderates in the Republican caucus might balk over some of the concessions that were given up to the Freedom Caucus members who were sort of, you know, holding McCarthy speakership hostage in order to uh, obtain some things that they wanted and, frankly, doing it very effectively. Um, But ultimately, uh, the conclusion was very undramatic. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen from the New York Times. That rules package was passed. 
um, amid concerns about McCarthy's concessions. So that happened yesterday. And, you know, that we've already been over yesterday. We went over in detail what some of this was. I mean, some of it really has to do with power, with individual caucus members and individual House members having more power in terms of the legislating process. I think, you know, those shifts towards the way the speakership was back in, uh, you know, historically weakening the speakership, I think those are all potentially good. The parts I have an issue with is obviously their goals in terms of making these changes, which they've made it clear. And they also extracted concessions from McCarthy that they would essentially use the debt ceiling to, um, you know, force spending cuts back to Tea Party era type tactics using budget uh, government shutdowns over budget fights to also try to force spending cuts. But, you know, it was interesting because uh, back in the Tea Party era, all of the talk was really about social welfare spending and defense cuts. They didn't really want to go there. They were reluctant to ultimately cut the defense budget, even though once they made a deal and they had sequestration, there were some defense budget cuts, but they were really more fo- focused on the social welfare spending. So it was like, oh, well, interesting that they're actually floating mm-hmm. defense budget cuts now. And the other piece as a lefty that I found interesting and you find interesting as well, and I think a lot of people in a bipartisan fashion found you know relevant and important is a potential church-style uh, commission where you would investigate deep state abuses, the surveillance state, and what they describe as the weaponization of the government against the people. Well, those those two potential changes and concessions have found an unlikely ally in squad member Ilhan Omar. Let's take a listen. The obviously cuts to the Pentagon budget um, is pretty exciting for folks like me who are putting up amendments to do so. I also think um, the uh, church style um, uh, committee uh, that they are thinking about to look into if there has been any violations um, of First Amendment rights of Amer- of Americans uh, by the FBI and others um, also interests me. So we'll see uh, what ends up happening yeah. and if Republicans are able to actually be able to get anything done. So noteworthy that she's saying that on MSNBC. Uh-huh. I'm sure it's not a message they're really hearing from anyone else. Uh, what? And yeah, and you know, I give her a lot of credit yeah. for her. She, she's willing to stake out some of these like consistent principled positions on things like censorship Mm -hmm. and on these issues as well. Um, Unfortunately, I wouldn't be so confident that this whole defense cut piece is actually going to come to fruition. Because while I do think you have a few people in the Republican caucus who would genuinely like to see the defense budget cut, um, immediately you had a number of members from the caucus in prominent positions running out to say, no, 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 the Republican Party will never, ever cut the military's budget Let's take a listen to a few of them making that case. And the argument is this would affect defense spending, which I'm here to tell you guys, Republicans will not impact defense spending aside from efficiencies and waste. Uh, it's the domestic spending that we're going to go after. Congressman Mike Waltz, a Republican from the great state of Florida and a decorated combat veteran, joins me now. Congressman, should military spending cuts be on the table and put on the table by a Republican? Well, look, I I agree with uh, Jim Jordan uh, that we are going to carve out uh, woke policies out of the military. We are going to look at the out-of-whack ratio of generals. I I invite him to come on the Armed Services Committee and and work with us on that. But, Stu, uh, and by the way, I'm all for a balanced budget. We've got to get spending under control, but we are not going to do it on the backs of our troops 
and our military. So this is, I mean, we can work on prioritizing defense spending, but that's really nibbling around the margins. If we really want to talk about the debt and spending, it's the entitlements program that's 70% of our entire budget. As you know, if we don't if we don't raise the debt ceiling, all we've got to do, now this is tough and this is difficult. And again, right. it takes courage, but what we've got to do is cut discretionary spending. So you can see there, um, clearly they're on a bit of a different page. Mm-hmm. Um, happy to talk about the woke policies in the military, but you know, the second guy whose name I am forgetting right now, who's like, no, if we're gonna balance the budget, it's gonna be quote unquote entitlements, that's social security and Medicare. He's actually the one that is being, I think the most honest and straightforward there that they have no interest in really cutting the military budget, what they're aimed at is social spending. That was Congressman Mike Waltz. All three of those people were some of the holdouts, um, part of the reason why we went ahead and highlighted them, because they were the folks who might have been amenable to defense cuts. I will say, I did appreciate his general's comment, because he's actually totally correct about bloat um, mm. within the bureaucracy. Yeah, I buy that. That's where it just all comes down to the question of, like, what, how, and the other problem is, like, okay, with entitlements. Like, do you really have the votes to actually force entitlements, uh, cuts on Medicare and Social Security? I don't even think that exists, um, even within the Republican Party. I mean, consider also that much of these are not even discretionary spending. Having been through so many of these shutdown fights, you and I know this, yeah. Crystal, which is that discretionary spending, The really the only places you can cut are social spending. I mean, that's pretty much it. Because the vast majority of the federal budget is bo- of federal spending is both the military and these mandatory entitlement programs, which can only be really changed by an act of Congress, which is far outside the realm of the normal budgeting process. The normal budgeting process is a genuine pittance outside of the defense spending. So if you're serious about reining it in, and look, I mean, even with defense, I care a lot about strong national defense. A point I've always tried to make here is that there is tremendous amount of bloat and ripoff happening within the defense budget. Like if you actually care about keeping safe, one of the segments we did on our holiday is that the Pentagon literally failed its own audit for what, like the fourth time or whatever since 2017. I remember that I believe HR accounts for approximately $100 billion of the entire Pentagon budget. And it's not just that they fail the audit. The percentage of their budget that they can't even account for is like 60%. Mm -hmm. Um, The number is completely absurd. And yeah, Congress passed this rule that every federal agency has to go through an audit, which seems like a reasonable idea, great idea. And they all seem to pass it except the Pentagon, which has literally never once passed the audit. And then all that this law ultimately created was a whole other bureaucracy to perform the audit that never they can never actually pull up. Which so costs like us even more money. Additional yeah. like hundred of million dollars spent on an audit that they never pass and never seem to care to like clean it up to be able to in any case, the whole point is there is a lot you could do if you were actually serious about cutting defense spending. But the fact that you have so many who were in the holdouts, who were the negotiation in the negotiations, who were the ones demanding concessions, saying, no, 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 no. We only care about the entitlements. We have no interest in the defense spending. Tells you everything you need to know about the likelihood that defense spending cuts are actually going to pass. Maybe the most noteworthy one here is from Congressman Chip Roy, who was probably the most significant of the holdouts in terms of actually coming to the deal, coming to a deal. He was the one that McCarthy was negotiating with, I think, the most. And he was the one ultimately who brought along something like 14 of his colleagues and among the holdouts that really sort of got them at the doorstep and forced the others to um, ultimately concede. Let's go ahead and put his thread up on the screen about this. So uh, this is from uh, 
this is, I guess, his office. Yes. So they say, Representative Roy and his colleagues secured a commitment from Speaker McCarthy to enact the biggest discretionary spending cut ever in FY 2024. And like clockwork, big spending neocons and the military industrial complex have claimed this means cutting defense spending in all caps. That is a lie. <laughs> Representative Roy and his colleagues negotiate an agreement that would reduce FY 2024 spending to the overall discretionary spending levels we saw in 2022 for contacts that the same spending levels we saw about 10 days ago, but it would ultimately mean cutting 2023 spending levels by over $130 billion down to $1.47 trillion next fiscal year. And during negotiations, cuts to defense were, again in all caps, never discussed. In mm. fact, there was broad agreement. Spending cuts should focus on non-defense discretionary spending. This means cutting funding for the woke and weaponized bureaucrats that receive massive increases under the $1.7 trillion omnibus. And then in parentheses, this is not Social Security and Medicare. I think that part is rather dishonest, frankly, just because of the way that the numbers work out. If you are really going to uh, balance the budget in 10 years and do the things that they claim they want to do, there is no way that you do that without touching Social Security and Medicare, which is a dramatically unpopular thing, approach to take and thing to do. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the points where they try to have it both ways. You can't rule out defense and entitlements. So, like, literally, one of them has to give. And one of them is the, we're about to talk about this in the midterm polling, but one of the top reasons that people even voted Democrat in the midterm elections. Also, I mean, good luck in a system where really only old people are the ones who are the most reliable to vote. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah. at, that, at that point, now you're talking about what? Like the National Park Service budget? Um, okay, you know, that's maybe one day of, of operation in the Pentagon, literally, like, yeah. I think less than one day of what the war in Afghanistan used to cost. It's the math doesn't work. I mean, on all of this, I just think it's incredibly likely, Crystal, that we go to back to sequestration. I, I don't see you think way. so. For people who don't understand what that is, it, it's basically automatic triggers and cuts in the budgets across the board in without being able to reach some sort of agreement. So instead of saying, well, we're going to carve out on X, Y side, given the fact that the Democrats do hold the Senate, they're not going to agree, even with some of the budgetary priorities of the House of Representatives. It's almost the exact same scenario of what happened back in 2011 um, mm -hmm. at the beginning of sequestration. So I just think that's almost certainly going to come back because that will trigger spending cuts, uh, victories for the Freedom Caucus. And it also just gives at least a, quote, fair blueprint for the type of spending cuts uh, for the Democrats in the Senate. The other alternative is we just have a straight up government shutdown. But, you know, we had that last time around um, in the Boehner era, and that's ultimately what led to sequestration. So I, yeah. just, I, I see all roads just seemingly re lead right back there. The first fight is going to be over lifting the debt ceiling. Mm -hmm. And you guys probably know this, but I mean, the debt ceiling is just is this sort of like arbitrary thing. It doesn't authorize more spending. It just says like, OK, you can spend the things right. that you've already appropriated. So it really should be eliminated altogether because all it's used for at this point is these sort of like hostage taking tactics. The uh, expectation is that the debt ceiling will need to be lifted in August. Now, the first thing I want to say about this is that Democrats, when they had control of the House and the Senate in the White House, probably should have done something about the yeah, debt ceiling. Didn't do it. They and they just didn't it. bother to do it. Right. Um, you know, you could wager a lot of different guesses as to why that is. Incompetence, laziness, those are always decent guesses. Another one could be that actually they kind of like these fights because oh, they, they make yeah. Republicans 
you know, expose themselves as being ridiculous and irresponsible and hostage shaking and having all of these priorities that are like radically out of step with the American people. And so, you know, that would be my guess as to why Democrats didn't ultimately deal with this because they kind of like the prospect of, um, you know, watching Republicans hold the nation hostage over whatever things that they want to ultimately cut here. Another alternative uh, that uh, many people have advocated for is to hashtag mint the coin, mm-hmm. where it's kind of a budgetary gimmick, but also Ultimately, I think it would work where you just mint this trillion dollar coin, you like transfer it over uh, across the government balance sheets, and then you're able to continue spending. And that would diffuse this debt ceiling crisis and basically diffuse all debt ceiling crises in the future because you know that they could just ultimately do that. So that is ultimately one, that is also one possibility of how this could all go down. And in some ways, the ball will be in the Democrats' court because the whole reason you ended up with sequestration is because Obama was really very open to this balance the budget deficit hawk talk. Mm-hmm. He tried to strike the grand bargain that would have actually put Social Security and Medicare cuts on the table. So that's the other question is right now it feels like, oh, I can't imagine the Democrats going along with this. But Joe Biden was part of that Obama administration. Joe Biden was a long time sort of like deficit hawk type of a guy. He said many times throughout his career that he wanted to cut Social Security. So, you know, I'm not 100 percent confident that ultimately some segment of Democrats won't cave to some of these demands. So we will see. Um, The last piece that I just want to mention here, because we've covered, obviously, like the um, abuses of stock trading in the House and the Senate, Unusual Whales, done a great job covering that, exposing that. He had a new report just recently showing how even in a terrible market, these people were all able to beat the market. I guess they're just trading geniuses. Who knows? Well, one of the offices um, that the Congressional Ethics Office, which has gone after members previously for violations of the Stock Act, which requires disclosure, the new rules package also guts that office. And this office, I think, is pretty widely respected. Um, They've gone after Republican members. They've actually, there's an ethics uh, complaint on AOC Mm -hmm. that they're evaluating right now. And the new rules would effectively gut the sort of staffing and um, my understanding, the budget and ability of this office to really function. So it will make it a lot harder for members who violate the Stock Act or whoever other congressional ethics violations like Mr. Santos, potentially, as one example, uh, it will make it more difficult for them to ultimately hold them to account. So I think that's a big loss here as well. That's a shame. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to the American people and what they want to see out of this Congress and how they are feeling about things in general. Let's put this up on the screen. This is the latest from CBS News. And um, they have a comparison in this poll of how people are feeling now versus how they felt back a year ago. And People are feeling a little bit better. Uh, it's not great. So back in 20, January of 2022, uh, only 26% of Americans said things were going well. Now that 26% has moved up to 34%. So we're up over a third of Americans who say things are going pretty well. Uh, in terms of going badly, back a year ago, you had 73% saying things were going badly. Now you have uh, that number ticking down to 65%. So you're basically at a third of people saying now things are going well and two thirds saying they are going badly. Um, You also had some interesting data here about, you know, specifics on how people are feeling. It's kind of the same on the economy. Things are 
still not good. People are still saying they're not good, but they are a little bit higher than before the fall midterm campaign. Uh, the job market stands out as a bright spot in terms of how people feel, even as concerns about inflation continue. And fewer voters think the economy's direction is getting worse than thought so in October. I think part of this soccer is, uh, you know, during a political campaign and you're getting a lot of ads and a lot of um, commentary about how poor the economy is uh, leading into the midterms. I think that does affect the numbers somewhat, although I think the biggest thing that affects these numbers is the way people feel in their normal everyday life. Yeah, I mean, look, the midterms really just gave us a lot to chew on because the truth is that a lot of people cared about inflation, but enough people were willing to say that they care about much more intangible things uh, than inflation. So even though the going well number has slightly increased increased from now to the 1st of 2022, the still vast majority think it's going bad. But as we saw under Trump, that didn't actually mean anything in terms of the vote split. The condition of the economy, people are willing to vote it bad, and yet they're still really just don't care or they split on partisan in terms of the view that it looks like. So, Or they didn't feel like the Republicans had an answer right. that was going to make sense in terms of making the economy better. Yeah, it's very interesting, uh, again, to just look at all of this. I will say, look, on a broader level, this is not partisan. Compared to a year ago, is your family, uh, family fa faring financially? 43% either say worse off or about the same, and only 50 15% are better off. I'd like to meet those people. Uh, and then in terms of feeling about things, uh, how they are in the U.S. over the next year, I am scared, hope, 47% say hopeful, which is kind of amazing, but the vast majority are either scared or angry. So, I mean, look, overall, Biden's approval rating in this poll comes out to 44%. That said, the fact that he was willing to, uh, was able to pull off the midterm victory that they did at approximately 40%, maybe even 39, by some respects is not a terrible place to be. I'll never forget yeah. Ron Klain tweeting out uh, Emmanuel Macron, yes. uh, president of France, his approval ratings before he was reelected. Right. And they were like in the 30s. And he yeah. was like, oh, interesting. He got reelected with an approval rating that was like super low. Yeah, but he's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, that clearly is their strategy. Like they don't, they think they can win. And, you know, they were basically right in the midterms, even though they lost the house and it wasn't the grand celebration maybe that, you know, they portrayed it as. But they bucked historical trends in the midterms. And I think Joe Biden does have a decent chance to, to get reelected as it stands right now, even if his approval rating remains in like the low 40s. Mm -hmm. And let's go to the next one, because this is very interesting data as well. In terms of the priorities of those who voted Republican, we shouldn't forget, you know, in terms of the popular vote, the Republicans did broadly win the popular vote. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at it on a national scale, <coughs> lowering inflation was at 89%, securing the border at 85%. That actually explains why Biden is paying so much attention to the border uh, right now. Third was increasing U.S. energy production. And then fourth was actually reducing crime. What was even more interesting is actually if you look at the split in MAGA Republicans, because it does show you just how different the... Um, just how different the split is between people who self-identify as MAGA Republicans and what they actually view as being loyal to Trump and their priorities over people who just vote GOP at the top of the ticket. Let's go to the next one uh, that is there. They say Republicans being loyal to, uh, to Trump is, quote, very important for 35%. 30% is somewhat important, 21% not too important, 14% not important at all. So the vast majority rating some importance. What's even more interesting is that if you look even deeper within those MAGA Republicans and their priorities, Crystal, they say that investigating the Hunter Biden laptop is actually more important than inflation. So this actually shows you part of why the GOP Congress is acting in the way that they are, because remember, the only threat that a sitting member of Congress really has 
is primary. Within those primaries, only the crazy people vote, uh, really, on both sides. It's very rare for normal people to engage in a primary election, or even, frankly, like a midterm election. It's very, very rare, uh, and statistically. So what do they care about? They have to appease. They're our most ardent base, not on policy. The thing that they care literally the most about is investigating Joe Biden. So you have that there. But then you also have a broad swath of the public who is like, hey, you know, the economy really sucks right now. Like, it would just be nice if I could pay less at the grocery store and even less at the pump. That's what I mostly care about. So it's a a major problem, I think, for the Republicans to be in this stuck position where policy is what the vast majority of people care about. But the actual people who mostly control their fate in Congress, that's not really what they care about at all. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the numbers, too, they had some about, like, do people want to see you standing by your principles or— working with the opposition to get things done. And this is another area where, like, you know, the hardcore Republican base wants to see you basically doing what Matt Gates and co. did mm-hmm. with the speakership fight. And uh, a large majority of independents and the general public wants to see people, like, working together on, you know, an infrastructure deal or whatever. And so you see, and you see this in the way that Joe Biden is positioning himself to run again, going to Kentucky with being seen with Mitch McConnell, in, by the way, a swing um, portion of Kentucky. I know people don't think of Kentucky as a swing state, but they actually have a governor's race on the ballot this year. And it's a Democrat who runs the state right now. And he is one of the most popular uh, governors in the entire country, Mm -hmm. which is also very interesting. Side note, you guys know I'm obsessed with Kentucky politics. Okay, so that's the Republican side of the ledger in terms of what they want to see out of this Congress. They also asked Democrats what their priorities are for this next Congress. Let's put this up on the screen. Number one priority for Democrats, for this Congress, is protecting Social Security and Medicare, 78%. Um, Refer back to our previous segment about how, you know, at least some Republicans are being quite upfront about how, quote-unquote, entitlements, which is Social Security and Medicare, are in their sights. And you can see how unpopular this would be, certainly with the Democratic base. But this was also one of the top priorities. So it's actually the second highest priority for all voters overall, um, the, for Democrats, the second highest priority is addressing climate change. Third highest is protecting abortion access. And fourth highest is lowering inflation. Zoom out to the general public and you have uh, number one priority continues to be lower inflation. 76% say that. 71% say protect Social Security and Medicare. So again, this is a challenge for the Republican Party, which has staked out an ideological position, which is directly at odds with what a overwhelming majority of Americans want to see out of this Congress. And then 63% say reduce crime. There was another peace saga here that I thought was interesting, mm-hmm. which is they asked about supporting aid to Ukraine. This is one where there's starting to be a growing partisan split, and especially a big split within the Republican Party, yes. with in the general Republican voters and the what they define as MAGA Republican voters, where the, Ma- the MAGA voters were basically split on whether they support aid to Ukraine or not. Um, overall, you've got 64% saying they support aid, 36% opposed. I'd have to go back and look at some previous numbers, but I believe that number of support is 
trickling down over oh, time absolutely. and definitely softening ultimately over time. Oh, no, that's there's no question. At one point, it was almost 80 or 90 percent, I think, at the outbreak of the war. So, I mean, it makes sense. We're about a year in now. And so you're, of course, going People to see People are starting to ask questions about right. how and this is all going to play out. Look, I mean, the way the question is asked to me is outrageous. Like, do you support aid to Ukraine? Nobody, uh, very few people are like zero aid to Ukraine. We're talking about the type of aid to Ukraine in conjunction with what? In conjunction with diplomacy. So don't let yourself get gaslit on, you know, aid is to Ukraine or not. Is there an inspector general overseeing Boom. how the right. money's being there's, spent? There's, there's what are many, you sending? There are many nuances yeah, to this entire discussion which do not belie I support aid to Ukraine. Yes. Do you want to send fighter jets? Do you <laughs> want to spend humanitarian aid? Like, right. there's a lot of different um, ways okay. that you could slice this. So out. within that context, yes. what, what can we learn from this? All of this, which is, I think that's why the cutting the Social Security entitlement program being pushed by the Freedom Caucus, it's going to be a big problem for Republicans. I mean, we underrate significantly how much Paul Ryan's addition to the Mitt Romney ticket really hurt him in the general election because it wasn't just about painting Mitt Romney as like out of touch, rich elite. It was also like Paul Ryan wants to cut your Medicare. I mean, right. do we all remember that famous video that Paul Ryan did with the charts oh, about the PowerPoints and yeah, and the PowerPoints. <laughs> God, I'm really, I, I, I hate myself for even remembering it, but it mattered a lot to the American people. People resoundingly rejected it. So over and over again, we've had a situation where touching the entitlement programs is just looked at as complete anathema, especially whenever you're not willing to discuss cuts elsewhere, or especially whenever you're trying to discuss <clears throat> in the context of removing benefits away instead of trying to make it, quote, more sustainable. And what they really mean by that is like pushing retirement ages up or cutting benefits over the years, or even worse, which is privatizing it. Yeah. Something Mr., uh, by the way, Blake Masters suffered at the polls. We also Good underrate point. that. So you can see very clearly in part of the reasons why people voted Democrat, if you're going to have Medicare and Social Security spending up there, this also shows you how difficult and how bad the Rick Scott plan that was released to cut Social Security was because Biden just beat them over the head with it. Personally, I didn't think it was going to break through, but clearly it um, at least some of it did. It did. Uh, to, you know, I always forget. There's a lot of old people in this country, a ton, and they vote. And it's like the media and the politics and all that that you and I consume, the vast majority of our audience cares about as well, is just totally out of step. So for them, I mean, they probably, you know, view their AARP blasts and mailers, yeah. <laughs> all this other stuff. But in a very, mean, and I can't fault them. You know, they're the well, ones who actually benefit from it. When you look at yeah. 71% saying that protecting Social Security and Medicare is priority form of this Congress, like it's clearly beyond just the boomers yeah. and the silent gen right. that is concerned about. About this. I mean, this is these programs are really popular. People are proud of these programs. They, you know, they they really believe in them. And um, obviously, the Republican Party has long, ever since the programs were passed, basically, they've been trying to do whatever they can to dismantle them. George W. Bush um, ran up against a brick wall in this and his efforts to privatize Social Security. So they've continuing to try to tweak and find ways that they can message this in you know, some way that's going to be more palatable to the American people. But people really, really see through it. And it is, you know, it is just insanely, insanely unpopular. Um, one more piece of data from here. And then I actually had a question for you, Sagar, on the mm. Paul Ryan piece. So they asked Republicans <clears throat> how they felt about how the speaker fight was handled. And it was split pretty much 50-50. 51% went one way, 49% went the other way. I can't w remember which way it was divided. But basically 50-50. Some people, f half said this was great. Half said this was terrible. So uh, divided in terms of how people felt about that. But the question I was going to ask you is, you mentioned Paul Ryan. Mm. And... A lot of the priorities that are reflected in the concessions that the Freedom Caucus was able to extract from Kevin McCarthy 
are very Paul Ryan type priorities. And yet I know that they like really hate Paul Ryan now mm -hmm. and I don't really understand it. Well, I mean, the whole knock on Paul Ryan is that he was, you know, he didn't, he wasn't a fighter. And I will say like part of the reason he got the speakership in the first place because he did agree with them substantively on some of the spending cuts. So it's yes. not like that's why they didn't get him. They more view him as like a traitor to Trump because he kind of criticizes the movement. A lot mm. of it is like more metacultural in terms of the It's more about affect. the aesthetics. It's a lot more about About aesthetics. the ideology. Well, remember okay. also Paul Ryan did hate them and basically actively spoke out against him after he left office. Part of the reason why they also hated him as well. He, they never saw him as like a genuine ideology. A lot of it comes down to whether you're willing to quote fight or not. That's all that really gotcha. matters. And that's why, I mean, look, if you're looking at that number, 50%, 50% is a lot of Republicans who support what only what 20 yeah. actually were willing to do. So that shows you they got a lot of support. Everything I've read from Boehner and all of them is that they were, they despised Roger Ailes and uh, Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly because they always had Jim Jordan and uh, Michelle Bachman and many of the other Tea Party warriors. They're like, you don't understand what stars you're making out of these people on the amount of leverage that they have now over my caucus. We're basically now 10 years or even more um, into that phenomenon and just shows you that these people Look, you can hate them, love them, whatever. They really have the pulse of the actual base of the party. Um, or at the very least, like the people who have been there, like rock red, not only just love Trump, but like hate the establishment yeah. at a core level. The Jim Jordans and the Gateses of the world, like they are heroes for exactly this reason. And see, it's funny you could even mention Jim Jordan and Matt Gates in the same breath because yeah. ideologically they're actually right. quite yeah, different. Yeah, total difference. Um, but I think what you're pointing to is they love the fight. Yeah. And the details of what it's over Don't care. are less important. So there's a contradiction here where we're talking about how, you know, this priority and that priority and this tactic, th that these things are going to be really unpopular. Things like going after Social Security and Medicare. But the fight itself is very popular. People love to see it. People love to see a goober like Kevin McCarthy twisting the wind. Mm -hmm. I love to see it, right? So I think the, the fight and the affect and the approach is extremely popular, it's extremely satisfying, and it's only down the road when you see what concessions were shared, what that actually means, and what their ideological priorities are that uh, the bloom kind of comes off the rose and you end up like Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan and a lot of other Republicans yes. finding out exactly how much appetite the American people have for dismantling Social Security. Very true. All right, let's go to the next one. Some Twitter files actually broke last night, uh, given over to Alex Berenson at his <clears> Substack. <throat> so let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. The headline from Alex is, quote, from the Twitter files, Pfizer board member Scott Gottlieb secretly pressed Twitter to hide posts challenging his company's massively profitable COVID jabs. To funnel his demands, Gottlieb used the same Twitter lobbyists that the White House did, fresh evidence of an overlap between the company selling the mRNA shots and the government forcing them on the public. What he specifically points to is that Scott Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who previously headed the FDA under Donald Trump and then later became a director on the board of <laughs> Pfizer, saw a tweet that he didn't like. Um, and that tweet explained specifically about natural immunity after COVID infection was at the time being litigated as whether it was superior to vaccination protection. It actually called on the White House that tweet to quote, follow the science and exempt people with natural immunity from upcoming vaccine mandates. Remember that we all went through this big debate at the time as to whether natural immunity should count at or not in any sort of mandate 
type system in which you would have, you know, almost like social credit, be able to board flights, many of the things that were floated at the time for interstate travel, etc. Anyway, by suggesting some people might not need this vaccination, the tweet could raise questions about the shots. So basically, Scott Gottlieb reached out and used a Twitter lobbyist to actually email uh, the top point of contact in the White House saying that the post was, quote, corrosive and that it would worried that it would, quote, end up going viral and driving news coverage. So that email was actually found in a search of records that they were run over at Twitter last week as part of the Twitter files. All of this also kind of in, involves Alex himself because we should all remember he was banned from Twitter. Twitter and then actually unbanned after he was effectively able to prove through the discovery process way before Elon even took over Twitter in the first place at the White House and specifically uh, Andy Slavitt, who was working there at the time, mentioned him in private communications on Slack, some of which I've covered here before. So anyway, uh, a lot more still needs to be come from the Twitter files on Dr. Fauci and more. I believe Alex is working on that right now, but this was one of the first things, Crystal, that he decided to go and put out there. Yeah. Yeah, well, the other piece of this yeah. is uh, Dr. Gottlieb is a CNBC contributor. Yes. And he also sits on the Pfizer board of directors. Yes, yeah, that's the problem. And yeah. <laughs> this is not disclosed. Yeah. So when yeah. he's doing his little, like, contributorship, let me just— right. And pretending like he's just a neutral expert, mm-hmm. obviously Pfizer has a deep financial stake in how people— view the vaccines and how they feel about, you know, getting a shot every year and all of those things um, and the safety and efficacy, et cetera. So that seems like something that should be disclosed every single time that he's on air. And this is par for the course with not just CNBC, uh, with CNN, with MSNBC, with Fox News, with all of them. They'll have these people on. They'll portray portray them as if they're just neutral experts, just calling balls and strikes based on their expertise. And you dig, you do one internet search and you find out, oh, they sit on the board of Raytheon. Oh, they sit on the board of Boeing. Oh, they sit on the board of Pfizer. And so they're not just offering you their unbiased opinion. They actually have a huge direct financial stake in the commentary that they are ultimately providing. And this may be one of the, you know, grossest parts, honestly, of cable news. It actually, I'll show you even more why it matters, which is that internally within Twitter, after the complaint was forwarded to the Twitter strategic response team, it was internally flagged saying, quote, please see this report from the former FDA commissioner. Again, ascribing him former FDA commissioner, not, not Pfizer, Pfizer or board member. member with a financial interest in the mRNA vaccine. And actually what ended up happening is they ended up putting a quote, you know, tag um, on the tweet itself, but it arose all the way to that level. It actually happened again one week later after this, where Gottlieb tried to actually uh, complain to the Twitter lobbyist who then forwarded it specifically about a uh, vaccine and lockdown skeptic saying, quote, sticks and stones may break my bones, but a viral pathogen with a mortality rate of less than 0% has cost, or approximately 0% has cost our children nearly three years of schooling. Now, I don't even know why uh, Mr. Gottlieb would even object to that because that's just objectively true um, in terms of both the mortality rate and schooling. It's also clearly a policy dispute. And last I checked, at, at least at the time, they didn't necessarily have a financial interest in lockdowns, I guess, outside of uh, vaccination in the process. But again, shows you that 
They are internally flagging these tweets at his behest, all the while flagging them as done by former FDA Commissioner Gottlieb, right. not Pfizer board member. And Gottlieb. that one was too far even for Twitter. They're yeah, like, even they're no, like, no, dude, they're we like, can't no. really take this one down. <laughs> but this is part of the issue, which is like, why is there this special program where blessed individuals get to forward? You know, the, right. I don't also even understand this mindset. I see dumb stuff on Twitter all the time. I don't think I've ever flagged literally anything. Because I'm like, all right, whatever. You know, like, who are these people who get up on their high horse and, like, start emailing powerful contacts? I mean, I guess, you know, I know some people. I could probably forward it to them and be like, Elon, please ban this person. Like, I can't imagine the mindset. So, look, there's two parts of it. Like, maybe it's financially motivated. It's very possible, given his own Pfizer board membership. But also just a secret system, which you can just, you know, email a guy. I know a guy effectively content moderation. Like, what kind of system is that? And also, you know, the the larger level conversation about some things were very clear about COVID and the vaccine, and some things yeah. weren't. And some things continue to be subject to debate, yes. and different studies show different things. And so to put yourself, to assert yourself as Twitter, as like a definitive authority mm-hmm. on COVID or any other, um, you know, medical information is a very, very dicey, let's just say, place to ultimately be. And Alex does point out with regards to uh, Gottlieb flagging that tweet about kids and, and school shutdowns. I think that was right before they were getting ready to approve the vaccine oh, wow. for five to 13 year olds or whatever. So, you know, there was a potential interest in making sure people, you know, were uh, were interested in that vaccine uptake. Although I will say, you know, it's hard to separate out people's financial motivation and their just pure ideology. Yeah. Because well, they this, very often go together. This yeah. fits with the Freedom Caucus also, where you know, is it is it because of their donors and what they want? Maybe is it because they're just truly like hardcore ideological actors? Um, sometimes it's the latter. Sometimes these are just like very radical, hardcore believers, and uh, Dr. Gottlieb might have fallen into that yeah. category as well. I don't want to put that off the table. Yeah, well, look, we, yeah, I don't I don't either. Um, all right, let's go to the next part here, uh, C2. Let's put it up there on the screen because all of this matters. In what context? Well, Moderna, releasing the news yesterday, plans to follow in Pfizer's footsteps and charge up to $130 for the COVID vaccine here in the United States after they pivot from a focus on government contracts to commercial distribution centers. And I have a lot of questions about this. First of all, why would anyone even buy this vaccine at this point in the future when it was literally free? I don't really understand how that works. Uh, Same with Pfizer uh, and many of the things that they have said about their own vaccine efficacy in terms of preventing infection and all that, which was a major selling point to most of the people who even got the vaccine. Uh, For those who are wondering why I say that that was the main impetus, look at the number of people who are have their fourth or fifth booster. I think it's like six or seven percent of the entire U.S. population in terms of the belief in the vaccine efficacy, at least in the way that it's being promised now itself. So first of all, I don't see the commercial demand, but it also, you know, this just shows you just how disgusting the entire price system within all of this is. 
U.S. government technology is the one that created this vaccine. The United States government literally moved heaven and earth in order to make sure that the vaccine was created. The FDA literally fast-tracked and emergency use authorized it. And then some states actually mandated it for, you know, part, basically participating in society. In what world are they then allowed to turn around and make even more profit? Because they've already made billions of dollars yeah. in profit at this point. So how how are we possibly allowing this? Like at the very least, the IP belongs to the U.S. government. And that's a good thing because then we can have debates about it. We can study it, you know, right. all of this. Instead, you know, now it belongs, or it's not now, it has always belonged to Moderna and to Pfizer who now want to commercialize it across the entire world. The amount of disgusting price gouging that yeah. happens with big pharma is truly criminal. And yet mm -hmm. we just allow it to happen. I mean, the amount we pay for any drug in the U.S. versus every other country in the world is astounding. Insulin is obviously the perfect example, yeah. but yeah, I, I'm reading here, a, you know, Yahoo Finance report on Moderna and their prospects for 2023, and it all hinges on the vaccine. <laughs> you know, they made in uh, 2022, they made some $18.4 billion on this thing. So this has been phenomenally profitable for them. And we were the ones, you know, our taxpayer dollars that funded the original research and the original technology. And guess what, guys? Pharma loves to tell you a story about all of the life-saving drugs they're developing, et cetera, et cetera. It's all total bullshit. Every new drug molecule has been developed by, in the past decade, has been developed with U.S. taxpayer dollars. This whole system is disgusting. It's corrupt. It's insane. And, uh, you know, the media outlets and social media companies are, are all in on it. Well, I mean, that's, you know, something Rogan actually always talks about is the level of television advertising. Some like 70 or the vast majority of television oh, advertising that you see. Say, oh, look, I don't watch cable news, but, you know, on the, ver on the rare occasions that I'm at my girlfriend's house or parents have it on, I'm like, oh, my God. Like, Every ask break, my doctor ask about, doctor ask about. your doctor about this drug. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. Like, if I need the drug, like, the doc will just say that you need this. Like, why should I be asking him anything uh, about this? Like, maybe I have restless leg syndrome or something. Like, <laughs> may or he can just tell me it sounds like I have restless leg syndrome. You should Here's what works this. for that. Yeah, I mean, it's it really is crazy. And it's a world that, you know, obviously we don't live in and most of our viewers don't live in because we don't even consume a lot of this stuff. But, you know, it's referenced to my previous, you do not underestimate the millions of people that do consume network and cable yeah. television. Um, and they are bombarded with the stuff 24-7. By the way, remember how we talked about that Alzheimer's drug? Oh, yeah. There was yeah. A lot and they of, just approved it. There yeah. was a lot of question about whether this thing really worked. The cost of it was astronomical. It was causing just this one drug alone being added into Medicare's coverage plan was increasing premiums mm -hmm. for seniors. I mean, it was just, it was this whole big deal. And there was actually an investigation that found there was improper coordination between the FDA approval board and the company. So there are problems at all levels. The one thing I do want to say is a lot of people understandably look at this disgusting corrupt system and are like, let me then pursue like alternative medicine remedies. Mm. That stuff is even less regulated. It's even, well, it depends. I'll it's speak even up. more corrupt. I'll speak there up for some alternative. There is no regulatory regime covering like these supplements and whatever and all of these different like chiropractors and all this stuff that, and there's, it's very uh, loosely regulated in terms of what sort of results they can ultimately promise. A lot of these pills that you buy in the store, you don't even know what's in them. Nobody is checking to see that these supplements actually have in them what they claim to have in them or that they're going to provide the benefit that they are supposed to provide. No, that's definitely true, especially 
especially on supplements. Yeah. Uh, the supplement industry in the U.S. is completely unreal. It's totally insane. There's actually a very, I forget the documentary. Uh, it's escaping me at the time. Uh, that really goes into, it was actually Orrin Hatch, the senator from Utah, where a lot of these things are manufactured. Yes. That led to the fact that they don't have to be evaluated by the FDA. All they have to do is put on the bottom these statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. Uh, another reason, actually, you have to do a lot of due diligence. I take a lot of supplements every day, and you have to do a lot to try and find companies which actually test their stuff is what you're saying is actually in it. And they're, anyway, uh, it is a absolutely out of control industry in its own right. That said, I will speak up for some alternative medicine. Some some like old wives tales and all those things are actually true. That doesn't mean though that what you're being sold uh, for them is what you're getting at the store. So that is a problem in and of itself. Yeah, so I'm I don't just really saying I think about. a lot of people understandably, they're like, okay, well this is corrupt. True, but at least there are some like <laughs> clinical trials and some sort of government regulatory body. Alternative medicine over here, there's like basically none of that. So just keep that in mind yes. as you're, do your own research, et cetera, et cetera. Do your own research. All right, let's go to the second. <laughs> this is something our producer, uh, Griffin, reminded us of. And the more I think about it, I can't get over it. Prince Harry, of course, is in the news. There's all these discussions about how he lost his virginity to an older woman, how he got into an altercation with Prince William, whether or not he called the royal family racist. Nobody apparently is focusing on the most insane part of his interview and of his book, where he admits and discusses killing 25 people in Afghanistan. Let's get to it. I was able to focus on a purpose larger than myself, to be wearing the same uniform as everybody else, to feel normal for the first time in my life, and accomplish some of the biggest challenges that I ever had. In Australia, become an Apache helicopter pilot. Um, you don't get a pass with being a prince. The Apache doesn't give a crap about who you are. No, there's, there's no Prince autopilot button that you can press <laughs> and just <laughs> takes you away. Um, I was a really good candidate for the military. I was a young man in my 20s, um, suffering from shock, but I was now in the front seat of an Apache, shooting it, flying it, monitoring four radios simultaneously, and being there to save and help anybody that was on the, on the ground with a radio, screaming, we need support, we need air support. Um, that was my calling. I felt healing from that. So let's get now to the actual excerpt from his book where he discusses killing 25 people. Let's put it up there on the screen. Our graphics team made an excellent one here. And he says, quote, while in the heat of fog and combat, I did not think of those 25 as people. You can't kill people if you think of them as people. You can't harm people if you think of them as people. They are chess pieces removed from the board, bads taken away before they could kill goods. I'd been trained to otherize them, trained well. On some level, I recognize this learned detachment as problematic, but I also saw it as an unavoidable part of soldiering. Now, he's probably right about that, Crystal, but it seems like one of those things that uh, somebody should just really never say, um, especially whenever they're in a prominent position, because, as predicted, his flippant dis discussions here aren't just damaging the royal family, they're actually causing problems for the British Army and for Afghanistan. So put this up there. There's actually been mass anger and protest that broke out in southern Afghanistan after Prince Harry specifically talked about killing 25 people. He's even been, quote, clapped back by Taliban spokespeople who are like, our soldiers were not simply chess pieces and pawns that were on the board. And then actually in the UK, people who are in the British military are denouncing Prince Harry, saying this is not how we teach our soldiers to behave while they're in combat. Uh, this is not the way that somebody who served in combat should be speaking about it. Um, you're not talking about it in a respectful way. Like you're actually denigrating the service that was made 
at the time. And actually, it belies uh, some crazy kind of war propaganda that also happened at the time in the UK, where Prince Harry and William were like genuinely hailed as heroes. And it was one of the ways that the war effort was sold to the British public. Mm, so anyway, all That's of this put together. It, the point is, is that him flippantly talking after his mushrooms trip about, you know, 25 uh, people getting killed and all that is being totally ignored by the media. Yeah. And the actual problems that he was now causing for the British military in this entire, I find the whole thing just kind of insane because I literally checked the Daily Mail and all that this morning. It's all just about Prince Harry and whether Meghan effectively called them racist or did not call them racist or not. I'm like, look, I, I guess I care about some of that, but like not even close to you know an actual geopolitical problem that the prince has now created here. I mean, the words here, to go back to them, yeah. are truly disturbing. You can't really harm people if you think of them right. as people. They were chess pieces removed from the board. Bads taken away before they could kill goods. I'd been trained to otherize them trained well. And... You know, at this point, we know how many Afghan civilians, including children, were murdered um, during our occupation of Afghanistan. And it was, I'm sure, enabled by exactly this type of mindset and type of thinking where, you know, a lot of this would be different neighbors have a grievance and they go, oh, this one's Taliban. And the next thing you know, you know, you're doing a night raid and and killing some family uh, on our way out which I supported the withdrawal from Afghanistan, as did you. We advocated for it here, even though we took a lot of heat um, and, you know, backed Biden on it. But on their way out, in order to show their, like, tough guy credentials, they do this final drone strike on what was supposed to be this terrorist, militant, etc. Turns out it was an aid worker and his family and his young babies in the middle of a busy residential area in Kabul. So we know that this fairy tale that um, he's continuing to tell here about how, oh, well, I only murdered bads that were taken away before they could hurt the goods is complete and utter bullshit. Um, The fact that it just goes by without a care shows you that it's not just, uh, you know, people like Harry who were trained to otherize Afghani civilians. It's the entire media. It's the entire, you know— U.S. I just, public, I just U.K. public, yeah. et cetera. You know, it's like you should not be talking so flippantly about this, especially in a public and bragging about it then on national television. And look, just to give you guys a taste of like how this is really being received, put this up there on the screen. This, These are all the major takeaways uh, for most of these people. Prince Harry says the U.K. royals got into bed. Yeah, him literally calling uh, Prince Charles's qu- wife, the queen consort, Camilla, quote, the villain. Uh, Prince Harry says his abusers he still hopes to reconcile with, accuses the royal family of being complicit in Meghan's pain and suffering, and Anderson Cooper asking him about Meghan Markle and reconciliation with the royal family. Like, this is the actual important part, and, you know, a while ago, you would think that it probably would have caused a stir. So, anyway, this is what the the tabloid press is focused on all of the wrong stuff. Like, this, to me, is the absolute top takeaway, especially given the fact that it's causing problems, that the people in the British military are very pissed at him for talking uh, this way and actually almost encouraging this type of, like, machismo behavior in the way that you talk about conflict afterwards. And then in Afghanistan itself, also causing mass protests after it. So it's a funny episode, and it just shows you, like, for some reason, the stuff that they go for is, like, the least 
least consequential when, you know, anyone watching that is like, oh my, wait, hold on a second, what? Also, what, with Anderson Cooper, you're like, he's like, glor- I mean, look, Apaches are cool, I'm not gonna deny it, but as a helicopter, and the people who fly them are legitimately impressive, but he should, probably should have asked a couple more yeah, follow-up like questions. like, along. Yeah, like- about the mission, being like, well, are you sure who you killed? Like, did you ever do an after-action thing? Like, did you find out about what exactly it was? What do you think about the withdrawal from Afghanistan, instead of, you know, the rest of the crap that they end up focusing on? Yeah. Just classic. Indeed. Absolute classic. All right, media segment here. Speaking of classic media yeah. moves. This is one of the most classic. Priceless. So it has now been seven years uh, since 2016, although it feels like it literally never ends. I guess six <laughs> or something years since the uh, actual November uh, election 2016. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. The Washington Post now out with a report put out yesterday saying, quote, Russian trolls on Twitter had little influence on the 2016 election on 2016 voters specifically, and yet in February of 2018. What exactly did they publish? Timeline, quote, how Russian trolls allegedly tried to throw the 2016 election to Trump. And the actual story itself is a masterpiece in just the delay of how long it took. It says, quote, a study finds minimal impact from Russian influence operations on Twitter in the Trump-Clinton presidential election. Hmm. The study, which the New York University Center for Social Media and Politics helmed, hmm. explores the limits of Russian disinformation and misinformation. My personal sense coming out of this is that it got way overhyped, one of the report's author says, about the meaningfulness of Russian tweets. We're looking back on the data. We now see how concentrated this was in one small portion of the population and how the fact that people who were being exposed were really already very likely to vote for Trump anyways. And then we have this data to show that we can't find any relationship between being exposed (laughs) to these tweets and people's change in attitudes. Now, I did not need a study to say that a weird meme of a bear with Trump's face on it was going to influence the with election. Broken English, I or pers- yeah. With like, <laughs> I you know love D- Donald J. Trump with the like what? <laughs> or these? Like, I, I remember looking back, and I encourage all of you to go and look through some of the old memes, like or even some of the trolls are broken English. They were terrible. They were really, I mean, they were not influential really in any way. And I also remember at the time, the way that they would talk about this, they'd be like, seven billion people scrolled past a Russian meme. You're like, oh my God, seven. But it's like, okay, how much bullshit do you scroll past literally every single day? Yeah. How much of it has an actual impact, not only on you on that day, on when you're going to vote in 2016, it was a ludicrous story that was pushed at the beginning, of which a lot of people really believed. I've always thought, Crystal, uh, that the cope with the whole Russian troll influential thing is that a lot of elite liberals just cannot fathom that any person would vote for Trump, like yeah. in a normal way. They're like, no, it's not possible. They had to be fooled. They well, had to be tricked. Remember, they yeah. also used it to discredit Bernie. Yes, say that, of course. Like, same You're thing. Right. Like his right. supporters were all influenced by these like Russian Bernie bro memes or whatever. So here's some of the findings of the report. 1% of Twitter users accounted for 70% of the exposure to accounts that Twitter identified as Russian troll accounts. Highly partisan Republicans were exposed to nine times more posts than non-Republicans. So again, these were people who were already Trump fans and going to vote for Donald Trump. Um, Content from the news media and U.S. politicians dwarfed the amount of Russian influence Mm. content that electorate was exposed to during the 2016 race. There was no measurable impact on political attitudes, polarization, and vote preferences and behavior from the Russian accounts and posts. Again, anyone who was really thinking this through at the time could realize you have these campaigns 
that are spending billions of dollars. Oh, yeah. If, if you put super to, PAC money in there, it's like tens of billions. To try yeah. to influence and persuade people. You really think some like like half-assed bad Russian memes, that was the thing. Like they're just so, and this got, you know, this played into the whole like Putin the puppet yes. master and the mastermind and he's just so really, he's like manipulating us like puppets or whatever. And it turns out none of this mattered at all. And it's just too perfect that it comes so many years later when they finally are like, by the way, that whole thing we sold you for years and years and years and told you that was like explained all of our politics, turns out Actually, that was totally fake. I had a Russian professor uh, in graduate school, at the, kind of the beginning, like when some of this was going down. And I won't say too much about him because he was an interesting guy. Uh, but something that he said was, he said, you do not imagine how much power that you people have given Putin mm. by being able to portray himself to enemies of the West as the great puppet master to elect the president of the United States, when in reality, he had nothing to do with it. They were like, that is the greatest victory that you could ever give a former KGB operative. It is one of those things that bolsters actually his image as a strong man and a tough guy in Russia and gives him way too much credit than he actually deserved. Well, and that's yeah. the irony, yeah. is it wasn't the posts themselves that influenced our politics. It was the hysterical Russian derangement mm -hmm. that then infected all of our politics. That Now, that has definitely manipulated public opinion oh, and yeah, changed the way time. people view world affairs. I mean, just look through, uh, you know, the Hunter Biden, who has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. Mm -hmm. That reverberated throughout our politics and elite figures and media and has had a massive impact. But the actual posts and memes themselves... Nothing. No. Nothing. Absolutely not. Amazing. Well said. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, learn to code. For years, this was the condescending mantra chanted at downwardly mobile workers suffering from the devastation of bad trade deals and disastrous dealings with China. The idea was that while the old middle-class jobs might have been destroyed, there was a new glistening industry with plentiful, high-paying jobs if you were just willing to obtain the necessary skills, i.e. coding. Now, the claim was always questionable, both from a numbers perspective. There were never enough tech jobs to ultimately fill the gap. And also from a practical standpoint, not everyone wants to be a programmer, and plenty of people find deep fulfillment in working with their hands or working with people. But the tech path to prosperity did seem to exist, at least now. Tech is looking a little less like a promised land and a little more like a wasteland. Overall job creation in the economy has actually remained strong with 223,000 jobs added in December that was led by growth in healthcare and in hospitality. But while jobs in those sectors were on the rise, the tech industry has been in the middle of a complete bloodbath. An independent website called layoffs.fyi tracks these tech layoffs and the numbers are really pretty stunning. Meta is cutting 11,000 jobs. Amazon is slashing 18,000 jobs. Salesforce is cutting 8,000 jobs. Cisco is cutting 4,100. Twitter is slashing 3,700. All told, more than 1,000 tech companies have laid off more than 268,000 workers. Stunning come down for a sector that was flying high, amassing unbelievable fortunes for billionaire founders just a couple years ago. And of course, it's not just in layoffs where the sector has taken a hit. Companies from Netflix to Uber to all the crypto players, they have all seen their market caps collapse in recent months. Check out this chart with the stock returns from a bunch of big tech players. You got Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, all here. The green positive bars, those are their stock returns in 2021. The red that you see there is how they fared in 2022. 
everyone was down about 20% or even more. Come down is being felt already in the San Francisco and Silicon Valley housing markets. I won't say that they've returned to earth, but San Francisco posted some of the biggest drops in the country last year in terms of housing prices, and they are projected to see the largest housing price declines in 2023 in the entire country. That is a big change from the breakneck pace of housing price inflation that has been the norm there for years and years and years. A clear indicator of the changing fortunes that we are witnessing in the tech sector. Now, there are two things going on here, I think. One is cyclical, and one might be with us for the long term. The first is that a lot of companies boomed during the pandemic as people stayed home, worked on Zoom, ordered Uber Eats, watched Netflix, and shopped on Amazon. CEOs like Salesforce's Mark Benioff and Meta Zuckerberg have admitted that they overhired during that time and are now dealing with the post-pandemic reality. I'm sure their heartfelt apologies are cold comfort to the workers who were hired and then summarily terminated. But the other factor here is the Fed's actions to lift interest rates. The Fed's policy of zero interest rates during the 2010s created a lot of fakeness in the economy, tech valuations that were wildly inflated, cheap cash that could be used to finance unprofitable companies. This easy money financed a lot of tech industry bloat and an irrational expectation that everything in the stock market would always just go up. The Fed is now trying to let the air out of the bubble that they themselves created. Of course, their one tool of hiking interest rates is bound to create massive pain for ordinary people who do not deserve to be collateral damage from a recession caused by the cleanup of elite failures. Now, what does all of this mean for the country and for our workforce? Well, one welcome development is it has already taken a massive bite out of the fortunes of many tech billionaires. Elon Musk's net worth took a historic hit last year, but Bezos, Zuckerberg, and other tech billionaires suffered inconceivably large losses as well. Don't worry, though, their net worths continue to be inconceivably large, so they will be just fine. Where the blow is going to be felt the hardest is in the upper middle class, which has really been built and seen its fortunes separate from the lower middle class on the backs of tech job growth. And it is this segment of society that much of our entire economy has been built around pleasing— hospitality, service, and retail sectors, they have all been designed to cater to the tastes and interests of this affluent, but not quite rich, group. That a blow to their fortunes could have big cultural and economic implications. Could be a huge psychological impact here as well. For a long time, a major dividing line in the workforce has been those who are catered to, treated as human beings, and those who are just treated as basically interchangeable meat sacks by corporate bosses. Well, now the tables are kind of turned. Retail and service sector workers, they're in huge demand. Tech workers, meanwhile, are facing unemployment. And Mark Benioff might be very deeply sorry that he has to lay you off, but ultimately, when market conditions changed, tech industry workers were just as likely to be treated as interchangeable meat sacks as their blue-collar and service sector brothers and sisters. Not a single wage earner is protected from the whims of the market and their bosses. So suddenly, worker rights and protections that white-collar workers kind of took for granted, those might seem a little bit more relevant than they did just a year earlier. And finally, while I expect tech to rebound and to, of course, continue to be a really important part of the U.S. economy for the foreseeable future, those who offer the industry as a panacea for the woes of the American worker have now been thoroughly repudiated. Some jobs of the future will be in tech, but plenty more are going to be in healthcare, retail, service, and hopefully a new reshoring movement and green energy movement. That will bring back an American industrial base. Making all of those jobs good jobs with living wages, with healthcare, with worker protections, that is a much better answer for workers than learn to code ever was. And Sagar, this is one of the stories that I kind of have my eye on. For- and if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. 
All right, Saga, what are you looking at? Well, about a year ago, uh, before times, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the biggest story, one of the biggest in the country, was the Canadian freedom protesters and the government's response. The response included the smearing them as racist, financial warfare, including the closure of their bank accounts, seizing cryptocurrency donations, the implementation of the most Chinese-style social credit course system that we have seen in the West, especially since Australia's response to the coronavirus. This story mattered for many reasons. First and foremost is it's Canada. The whole thing is that they're nice. But the real point was it's real close to home. We have a lot in common, and if it can happen there, how soon can it happen here? That's why what's happening right now with author Jordan Peterson of The Daily Wire is actually crazy, because it's happening in Canada, in a system that could easily rear its ugly head here in the U.S. very soon. The Ontario College of Psychologists, which is the regulatory body through which the profession of psychology is licensed, is currently mandating that Peterson subject himself to a literal re-education course in social media communications after a, quote, investigation into his behavior. Peterson, luckily, I guess, for our sakes, actually uploaded the entire complaint against him since deleting it, though. So-called transgressions are reviewed, and if you review them, they're crazy. The first allegation is that Peterson made a joke about suicide directed at someone on Twitter. The exact incident's right in front of you. It was an anonymous tweeter raising a concern about overpopulation, to which he replied, quote, you're free to leave at any point. Frankly, not even that good of a joke. But I guess, if you're is it really telling someone to kill themselves? Like, come on. The second is even more absurd, an allegation that Peterson undermined the ability for psychologists to encourage children be removed by their parents. However, specifically, he was criticizing the Canadian government's attempts to forcibly remove children from the freedom protesters area. The exact tweet is in front of you right now. It's a statement of opinion against the exact policy in this instance or against the practice in general. Ask that question. It is obviously a disagreement in policy. In no way does it imply that it's sometimes not appropriate to remove children from the care of parents. Next up, and this is really not a joke, is that Peterson violated the standards of the profession because he called a key aide to Justin Trudeau a, quote, prick, and continued his criticism of the aide as corrupt. He also called Trudeau a puppet. All of the tweets in question occurred during those freedom protests. There are many other complaints in the included against Peterson, saying that, including him saying a plus-size model was not beautiful. But the most egregious is this action against him for violating the so-called COVID misinformation policy. It included a direct call for an end to COVID mandates on January 24th, 2022, and an end to mass mandates and lockdowns in December of 2021. Keep this in mind. This is months after the vaccine was rolled out, well within the bounds of acceptable debate at the time. So there you have it. I left out some of the most cringe complaints about him for misgendering individuals, but of course that makes an appearance in there as well. Take this in totality. What do we have? We have Peterson having the temerity to express an opinion. Look, even if you don't like the man and think he is cringe, which I very often do, why should any of it matter? Why should the profession of psychology litigate literally any of this? Because consider the standards that they are setting. Having political opinions against the Canadian establishment and against the COVID regime is a violation of the field of psychology itself. Furthermore, the actual sentence is even crazier than it sounds. Not only does he have to subject himself to, quote, re-education on social media, but there is no set number of hours. At his own expense, you have to take as many hours as they see fit until he has been sufficiently re-educated, almost out of 1984. It's an indeterminate sentence. 
Luckily, Peterson, I guess, seems like he's doing fine. But what about people out there who are not rich? How is this not a very chilling warning to anyone in the profession in all of Canada? Keep your mouth shut about the regime or we will come after you. Furthermore, consider this. How is this not proceeding itself a blow to science itself? How exactly are people going to practice, experiment, determine what is the cutting edge in mental health if they are so cowed they cannot express a contradictory opinion? Ask yourself if any of the psychologists in Canada who pushed, let's say, SSRIs on patients, despite faulty and objectionable science, will be subject to re-education on that policy. Or any psychologists who encourage cracking down on freedom protesters or praise Justin Trudeau. Think about the inverse. We now know that masks were highly ineffective against Omicron and mostly completely against COVID unless it was properly fitted N95. Those aren't, aren't, why aren't the psychologists who advocated for them in Canada guilty then of spreading medical misinformation? I don't even want them to be re-educated, as satisfying, I guess, as it would be, because the profession of psychology should be focused on psychology. If they happen to have opinions elsewhere, so be it. That's what it means to be a citizen in a supposedly free country. And don't think this can't happen here. Already the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Medical Association are singing the same tune on gender ideology. It probably won't be long till this exact same type of occupational censorship worms its way into America. From medicine, the Bar Association and law, many areas of American life, ideological takeover of higher institution is rupturing trust and will have actually the opposite intended effect. Ask yourself, after two years, do you trust the science more or do you distrust it more than ever? I know which camp I fall in. I suspect there are millions more just like me with every more action just like this. That's like I said, Crystal. Do I find Peterson Kramer? And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Got a great guest standing by, uh, Yon Grillo. He's been living in Mexico and reporting on narco politics. He's got a great substack. Let's go ahead and put it up there on the screen. Discussing AMLO's government recapturing El Chapo's son, slaying the demon of El Culiacan. So we have him to join us now to talk on not only about this, the cartel violence, but also President Biden's visit to Mexico. Yon, thanks so much for coming back on the show. We appreciate it. Great to see you. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks. So why don't you give us the context of the capture of El Chapo's son uh, right ahead of Joe Biden's visit to Mexico, his first visit as president of the United States, and also what the AMLO government is trying to accomplish with all of this. There's been a lot of careful stage managing happening behind the scenes. Yeah, well, the timing, it's always hard to believe this is a coincidence. There's a history in Mexico of every time uh, you know, a Mexican president meets an American president, capture a big narco, make a big seizure. And when they're having these conversations and Biden was particularly going down with a mandate of saying, I'm going to ask about fentanyl, because why is it that so much fentanyl is coming through Mexico right now? Then AMLO can answer at least, well, we're fighting, you know, we're capturing these guys, look what we did last Thursday, and we're even taking casualties doing this. Now, the particular importance of Obilio Guzman is really he became a symbol after 2019 when there was an attempt to arrest him by soldiers in an anti-narcotics unit in 2019. And they pinned him down in a luxury house in Culiacan and 700 gunmen came to his rescue. There was fighting on the streets of the city of Culiacan, Sinaloa, with 700 gunmen against 350 soldiers. And after four hours, the government let him go. And so he became really a symbol of impunity and in symbol of the gangsters running things, and people would use this against the president of saying, well, you're either weak or you're corrupt or both. 
Now, what happened last Thursday was you had a much more sleek operation. They went and they, they got uh, Obidabu's man in a small village, so it's not a tight urban area. And they went in early in the morning, was the first of 2019, was the middle of the day. This was early in the morning when it was still dark. They got him. It was still a fierce gun battle. They got him. They got him out and they flew him to Mexico City before the hit men took to the streets. Now, there was still a lot of crazy fighting. The official numbers were 29 dead, including 10 soldiers. So a lot of lives, a cost of lives. And it could be a lot more because in many cases, the gunmen will uh, will take away the bodies of their people and take them themselves. So they won't be going to the, uh, in the official count. Talk to me about, you know, AMLO, this was obviously embarrassing for him when they, he had to back down and they had to let a video go. Um, but he is incredibly popular. I mean, by some metrics, he's the most popular world leader on the planet. Um, what is it that people have really respected about him and appreci- appreciated about his leadership? Yeah, I would say uh, AMLO plays um, a kind of populist game quite well. Um, and a lot of, you know, he, he uses, in, a, in some ways, the same way that, like, a leader like Trump did or some other populists, but he kind of ha- has a broader support, I would say, than Trump, or the country's not quite as fiercely divided as in the case of Trump. And th- in some ways, he's had a certain steady hand of leadership. Now, some of his critics will disagree with this. And, you know, some of his critics do think he's the kind of, he is really doing a lot of these bad things. But if you look at Mexico the last four years um, and through the pandemic, which is a very, very difficult time, there's been a kind of certain steady hand of leadership and it's still this kind of uh, playing up of, of certain ideas of regaining the nationalism of Mexico, which appeals to a lot of people. So I, I wouldn't say, he, I don't think the figures are the most popular in the world, but it certainly maintained a level of popularity um, in a very difficult time. I was just in Mexico. There was some discussion about hugs, not bullets, kind of being the original doctrine. You've actually written about that on your Substack. What Does this usher in like a new era for how AMLO is going to treat the drug cartels, especially with so much pressure from the Biden administration? Is he abandoning that? Was it a front? Like, what do you make of the way that he's handled the cartels the last couple of years? Yeah, so I think that the hugs, not bullets um, has basically gone now uh, in most ways. Really, it was, it was a notion at the beginning when he first was running for presidency in 2018. It, it was this idea of, okay, we've had this horrific war the last 15 years. We're going to have to have a reconciliation. We're going to need to make up. This, this violence is over. Now, in some ways, there's a certain uh, point to that. I can understand this. I mean, you've seen this horrible violence and trying to end this whole kind of war on drugs thing. The problem is, is the reality of what do you actually do? Uh, and the reality is that the cartels, they're not, I mean, they're trafficking drugs and making billions of dollars, and that's funding them and financing, but they're all financing them then. But they're also in a whole bunch of different rackets. They're also involved in human smuggling with the migrants on the border, with theft of oil, with arms trafficking, with prostitution, with illegal mining, and with all of these things. And you can't really just kind of go back and, and give them space or just allow these gangsters to operate. So I think he kind of already gradually moved away from the hugs, not bullets, kind of a gradual thing. Didn't really have many concrete policies for that. And the flip side, he's moved more and more towards uh, supporting the military 
and building up, he built up this new force called the National Guard, and then he handed that to the military uh, effectively. And so you've got a, a more bolstered and powerful military in the country as well. Do these, as a practical matter though, do these tactics actually work? So if you take out a leader and lock him up, if you have a big uh, seizure and you know, or interdict a bunch of drugs, does it actually slow the uh, flow of drugs across the border? Does it decrease the supply that's ultimately available here in the US? It was, yeah, that, I mean, you've really kind of hit the point there, uh, Crystal, with the, you know, it, it doesn't. And, and that's one of the, one of the issues that they come around. I mean, especially with Obidogo's man, he's one of four of his brothers in this one faction of the Sinaloa cartel. And the Sinaloa cartel is one of many cartels. So still many people are moving drugs. Now, with the issue of fentanyl, and I was over at the port of Manzanillo recently on the Pacific coast, where a lot of the fentanyl comes in from China or the ingredients coming from China. And yeah, I mean, there's huge amounts coming through. And there's other big issues like corruption in the people running the ports, corruption in, in, in the officials and the military itself, moving these drugs as well. So, so that, you know, I don't think just this kind of taking down kingpins does. Now, you know, I, I've been covering for, for 20 years the, the, this war on drugs and, and many things, and often been a critic of the, the, the fundamentals of the war on drugs. However, with the severity of fentanyl, with the level of deaths you're seeing right now in the United States, and it really is... I mean, the 107,000 overdose deaths in 2021, I mean, that really is a mind-boggling number, the way it's gone up. And I really don't know what you do really about fentanyl and crystal meth that are mm. causing so much harm. Interesting. And so then, broadly, uh, do you anticipate more cartel violence in the months to come after a relative lull, I guess, in the last couple of years? Like, is this the opening shot um, as a result of U.S. pressure? Uh, I, I, well, I, I would say, yes, uh, drug cartel violence will continue. I mean, I, I wouldn't say there's really been a relative low the last couple of years. I mean, it's been, mm. I mean, this last year we've seen a slight reduction of murders uh, compared to the year before. But still, if you look at the last few years, we, you know, Mexico in every year is registering official numbers of well over 30,000 murders. Wow. I mean, yeah, very, 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 very cruel levels of violence there. Yep, uh, an important point. Um, and uh, we really appreciate your reporting. You're literally uh, on the ground, been covering this for a long time. Uh, we're gonna plug your Substack. It's right in the description of this video. We encourage you guys to go ahead and subscribe. Some of the best reporting from actually on the ground and a very knowledgeable person. So we appreciate you joining us. Thank you, sir. Great to see you, Yoon. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks much. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you guys so much for watching. Really appreciate it. Love being back here in the studio, Crystal. And it's a pleasure to say CounterPoints is tomorrow. The Yay. graphic is fixed. Uh, we've got some fun <laughs> announcements and all that coming up. Of course, the live show as well. And uh, we'll be teasing and introducing some new things for our premium subscribers that you guys can vote to improve on and build out uh, from the set and et cetera. So I think you guys will really, really enjoy that. But CounterPoints tomorrow, regular show Thursday. Other than that, I think that's it. We love you guys. Yep. Love y'all. See you soon.
Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. The information age can be overwhelming, especially when the information can't always be trusted. But for the past 180 years, readers around the world have turned to The Economist as their trusted news source, delivering in-depth expert analysis of a wide range of topics. Listeners get a one-month free trial when they sign up at Economist.com. That gives you unlimited digital access to daily articles, special reports, great podcasts, subscriber-only newsletters, and so much more. Take the guesswork out of staying informed. Go to Economist.com to sign up.